Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. I think it's okay, Alex. We'll go ahead and start. I want to respect everybody's time and make sure that we get as much amazing Torah from today's speaker. Super excited to have Rabbi Chaim Ian Pearl, who is a rabbi, a lawyer, and a social activist living in Yerushalayim. He is the founder of Shir Hadash, a popular uh, Yerushalayim-based synagogue and educational institute, and a community center, as well as... Uh, he is uh, an expert in Israeli and Jewish environmental law. He has worked at, as, at Israel's premier environmental law firm, uh, Lesser and Goldman, and is a leader in spiritual diplomacy efforts made on behalf of, of Israel. A one-time aspiring comedian, we're going to have to share some jokes here, Rabbi Pearl received his ordination from Yeshiva University and holds law degrees from uh, Hebrew University and an LLM with a focus in Mishpat Irving and the NYU School of Law, uh, 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 JD with a con uh, concentration of international law and a degree of international law, politics and security from Georgetown University School for Foreign Service, and the author of three books. He is married to Dr. Rachel Pearl and is a father of five children. So happy to have uh, Rabbi Chaim join us today. Chaim Ian Pearl, thank you so much. Thanks. It's nice to be here. Uh, I want to thank you for that introduction. I want to thank Rav Shmuley for uh, organizing this. I did also see uh, a couple of uh, people from when I used to live in Phoenix. Uh, I lived in Phoenix in the late 80s. Uh, my family is still here. Uh, I see uh, the Cabots are online, so it's nice to see. Uh, I'm sure there are others as well, but it's nice to see uh, um, familiar faces, at least familiar names. I do want to just, if I may, take one half second to say that I, I'd like to dedicate this uh, class uh, in memory of my father. Whenever I come to Phoenix, I like to think of him, of course, all the time. And I have copies of one of my books uh, outside that anyone who's here, I'm happy to uh, give those to you in, in his memory. Um, so the topic we're going to talk about, uh, Rav Shmuley, uh, just before I came on, um, alluded to it, that it's a fairly big topic. And of course, it's a, it's a very relevant topic. Uh, how uh, does Judaism in general, how does Israel in particular uh, treat minorities um, from a halakhic point of view, right? I'm not talking uh, political, I'm not talking philosophical, but from a halakhic point of view, what does Judaism have to say when you are a majority uh, in a country in your relations with non-Jews? Um, and it's a, uh, it's, a, it's a big topic. We're going to do a, a broad survey um, of some perspectives over the last 2,000 years. Uh, it's not an exhaustive survey at all. Um, and we're going to end by focusing a little bit about the modern time and how Israel today, uh, from a halakhic point of view, uh, should be looking at its minority populations. In particular, I'm talking about the Arab population, but this could go uh, uh, according to any uh, minority. Uh, and the reason why I want to focus on Israel to a certain extent, because something very interesting happened in 1948. In 1948, there were a number of rabbis that were presented the question, how should Israel, as a Jewish state, look at the sizable minority non-Jews in its population. Again, not from a political point of view, but what does halacha have to say with it? And across the spectrum, I mean, rabbis from various different uh, backgrounds, from, you know, from very different outlooks, all agreed, they came with different reasons, different halachic sources. They all agreed that Israel should treat its Arab minority as any Western liberal uh, democracy should 
uh, view minorities, equal rights, uh, equal access, all the variety of, of different things, protection and the like. Um, and they all came from a halakhic point of view. And I said a variety of different perspectives. And I want to kind of understand how did we get to that conclusion? Because if you look at earlier sources in the Torah, in the Talmud, in the Mishnah, it's not always so clear. In fact, there are going to be some things that we're going, some sources we're going to come across uh, that are incredibly difficult to deal with in a, a modern society. The Jews living in, in Israel, for example, uh, if you come across a, uh, a idol worshiper um, and he has fallen into a pit, uh, there is a debate whether or not you help that person out of the pit or whether or not you leave that person in the pit. And one of the things is you leave the person in the pit. You're not allowed to throw him into the pit, but you're also not permitted to leave him out. So if that's sort of a starting point, how do we end up here in the modern state of Israel that all the rabbis across the board say that this is a very important principle of Jewish law to protect minority, uh, minority civil rights. The second thing I want to do, uh, talk about a little bit, is Israel in general, and why I think it's an exciting time to live in Israel, and uh, how, if we use just this one issue of uh, viewing minority rights, um, I think is a prism by which you can really understand a lot of what's going on in Israel and what's exciting about Israel. I'll just tell you a very quick story. It's a story you all know, um, and I'll end at the very end of our, our talk by sort of returning to it to explain what I mean. The story is the, the tortoise and the hare, right? We're all familiar with the tortoise and the hare. Uh, the tortoise wins because the hare falls asleep. Um, this this uh, you know fable uh, actually has three additional parts that many of us never get to. The next day, the hare, who is upset because he knows he's faster than the tortoise, but he fell asleep uh, because he was so arrogant and uh, uh, overconfident, uh, decides to get a good night's rest, decides I'm not going to fall asleep, and he runs the entire way and he w wins the race. Right? He makes a correction of that arrogance and becomes more humble, and he has to be more aware. That's the second story. The third story is something happens the next day. The next day, the, the tortoise says, let's race again, but he tries to create something to his advantage. He understands that he's slow, but maybe there are certain qualities I have that the tortoise doesn't have. So he says, I get to pick the route. And the tortoise says, I mean, the hare says, okay, whatever route it is, I'm going to still win. The tortoise picks a route that has a river in the middle. And the hare gets to it and can't cross it. And so the tortoise, even though he's very slow, crosses it. He plays to his strengths and he wins. So the next day, and this is the final part of the story, the tortoise and the hare, by now, they've already now raced three times. They've talked a lot. You know, at night, they eat their pasta together and they get ready for the next day. They become friends. And they say, why don't we do this together? And so the tortoise uh, gets on the back of the hare and they race to the river fastest time they've ever had, the tortoises had. And then the tortoise gets down and the hare gets on his back and they cross the river and then they switch again. And they create their world record, right? It's the fastest that anyone has been able to do it because they end up working together. They sort of take two different approaches and they merge them together to create something that's bigger than the what they can do on their own. And that's the point I want to end with, that Israel represents not only the ability of bringing different people together to create something more unique than they would have otherwise, but different systems together. And we're going to look at different halachic systems that exist sort of divorced from one another throughout most of Jewish history. And then we're going to see how Israel brings them together and I think create something uh, very, very exciting. Um, so let's start with the hard stuff. The hard stuff is uh, where has Judaism held 
uh, with regards to minorities, um, how is it held, uh, particularly in Israel? So the, the first source uh, we're going to come to in just a moment uh, is from the book of Exodus, from the book of Shemot. And the reason why I put it first is because in 2010, there was a something called the rabbi's letter. There was a rabbi in Sfat that sent out a letter to municipal rabbis, rabbis from throughout, uh, uh, throughout Israel who are government workers. And in this letter, he said, I want to uh, declare that Jews should not rent or sell properties to non-Jews in Israel. He's referring specifically to Arabs. There's a political element to this, right? Um, but he also rooted it in halakhic sources and says, it is forbidden for Jews to rent or sell property, apartments, fields, whatever the case may be, to non-Jews in the land of Israel. Something like 50 or so municipal rabbis signed on. And it was a huge uproar because these are, Municipal rabbis, they receive their salary from the state of Israel. Okay, that means they're government officials. And they are condoning, right, a, a racist, certainly a discriminatory uh, perspective. All citizens are supposed to be treated equally. And now they're encouraging people not to rent or sell properties uh, to non-Jews, to, to Arabs in this case. Um, and there's a huge uproar, but not one of these municipal rabbis lost their job. And what was their defense? What, what could your defense be if you're a government official and you say something like this? So the first defense was free speech. <laughs> I'm allowed to, to, to share my opinion. I don't think that should be the case, but they had a, another source. They're rabbis. And they says, our job as rabbis, municipal rabbis as well, is to teach Torah. And what we're teaching is Torah. And they then quote this first source from the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus says, uh, they shall not remain in your land, lest they cause you to sin against me, referring to non-Jews in the land of Israel, for you will serve their gods, and it will prove to you a, a snare. The Hebrew is lo yeshvu ba'aretz. You shall not allow them to reside in your land. It's an explicit verse in the Torah. There's another explicit verse as well um, in Deuteronomy that says you shall not you shall not give them chanaya. You shall not give them a resting place in your land. And therefore, the logic seems to be you shall not provide an ability for non-Jews to remain in the land and selling a renting property allows exactly that. So they had a biblical source for their discriminatory point of view. Rabbi uh, Aaron Lichtenstein, uh, who was the rabbi, he's passed away since, of the largest Hezder Yeshiva, which combines army service and Torah learning together, uh, wrote a scathing letter against them and said, do you realize what you're doing? First of all, you're causing an incredible rift in society. You know, to the extent this gets out, it's going to, you know, cause a society's already very, you know, on edge. And you're going to, you're adding kindling to the fire. But more than that, you misunderstand how Jewish law works. You can't simply cherry pick a verse here and a verse there. Halacha, making a halachic decision, um, is not legal positivism. Legal positivism is, you know, just finding sources, boom, 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 and now a conclusion. Halacha involves bringing in a lot of different sources as well as conflicting sources. So, for example, in this particular case, they quoted the source in the Torah. Uh, they also quoted, I didn't bring it here, a source, uh, the Rambam. Um, he says, well, what about other sources? The Rivid, who disagrees. The Rivid, for example, says, I should maybe add this as a caveat, a general topic. When we're talking about non-Jews uh, in the land of Israel or in general, an important caveat is not all non-Jews are the same. Just as not all times the Torah, or the Talmud, or the Mishnah speaks about Jews, is it the same, 
right? Jews during a period of time when we are being oppressed, uh, you know, being hounded, right? Being killed is a different Jew than a Jew living in Phoenix, Arizona in the year 2023. Um, similarly, non-Jews are very different. If you're talking about non-Jews who were Ovdei Avodah idol worshipers in the land of Israel, that means not just theologically idol worshipers, but also morally, which included, for example, people who sacrificed their children to Molech, right? So those is a different category than Jews, non-Jews living in, again, Phoenix, Arizona, 2023. And in fact, the, the sources themselves describe at least seven different kinds of non-Jews. We don't have time to go into all of them, but they're worthwhile to explore. There's something called the seven nations. These are the seven original nations that lived in the land of Canaan uh, when the Jews came in. Um, there are those who are Ovdei Avodazara, idol worshipers, which could be, as I just described, those are the followers of Molech who would sacrifice their children. There are those who are uh, the B'nai Noah, those who follow the seven commandments of, of Noah. Um, there are those, it's a term we'll come to a little bit later, that the Me'iri created. Uh, the Me'iri is a 13th century rabbi. He was living amongst Christians and he worked uh, with the Christians quite well and successfully. And he described them in Hebrew, ha'umot ha'gdarot hadatot, civilized society people who are a part of a, a religion that has rules and ethical standards, whether it's Christian, Islam, as well as others, that's a different category of, of non-Jew, not like the Romans, the Romans who were chasing and hounding Jews. Maybe those are the ones the Talmud's referring to when it says, maybe you don't lift them out. If you're being hounded and harassed and potentially killed by Roman soldiers and you find a Roman soldier in a pit, Maybe you don't have an obligation to bring out your potential murderer from there. But he says, this is a different category with regards to these individuals. There are other categories as well. There's the chasidei umota alam, the righteous of the world, that you have an additional obligation. And then a final category, which we're going to conclude with, a ger toshav. A ger toshav is a resident alien, someone who lives in the land of Israel. A non-Jew lives in the land of Israel. We're going to come back to that concept. So Rav Lichtenstein, if you'll jump back with me, right, in his scathing letter against the rabbi's letter that says you can't sell to, to non-Jews, says, you also don't understand how halacha works. You didn't quote the rivet. The rivet says this verse here, that you, they should not give them any, any land to reside, was specifically the seven nations of the world, uh, seven nations of the, of the ancient world the, that were of a certain category, not anyone of the other non-Jewish groups I just mentioned. Um, the Tosfot also gives a different opinion of who we're referring to. Um, the Gemara in Bavabatra says it's an economic dispute, not a theological. So Rabbi Lichtenstein says, first of all, you're not being honest in cherry picking, and that's not how halacha works. And then he says, and the real way halacha works anyway is that you bring in not just sources, but you bring in values, what he calls metahalacha. You find values, not from the outside, not just grabbing whatever the modern day value is, but within the text, within the sources, uh, you find these values and that has to influence how you make a halachic decision. He says, and it's worthwhile to have that wider discussion of how you determine halachic decision-making. He doesn't, then doesn't do that. But what I wanna do is sort of, sort of pick up where he left off and say, how would we have this? How should values come in and play uh, in a, making a halachic decision? So to do that, I want to jump back to 1965. 1965, something similar 
uh, or parallel, I, I would suggest happened. There was a, uh, a secular, I would say a provocateur um, by the name of Yisrael Shachak. Yisrael Shachak was, was uh, he was always attacking um, traditional Judaism. He had many, he'd written books about all the terrible things that the Torah says uh, about other people in general and Judaism in general. Um, and he was very anti, but he was also a professor and he was very bright and he knew a lot of his texts. And he said as follows, he says, Judaism says that a Jew should not violate Shabbat in order to save a non-Jew. And he thought this was atrocious and terrible. And he brings a whole series of halachic sources to justify it that says, in general, one should violate Shabbat to save the life of a non-Jew, uh, to save the life of a Jew, but that wouldn't apply uh, to save the life of a non-Jew. And he said, this is a terrible thing. That's why I can't have anything to do with traditional Judaism. Defended his assertion by saying he was once walking in Meir Sharim in 1965. And as he's walking around, there was a, a African-American tourist that was in Meir Sharim as well. And he has a heart attack right on the street and he falls in front. And some of the people in the tour group, they rush to the nearest neighbor. It's Shabbat. They knock on the door and they say, can we use your telephone? To, or can you call the, uh, the ambulance to save this man? And he says he was just walking around. He saw this and they refused to let the, the people in to make a phone call. They wouldn't make a phone call and they let the person die on the street because they said we're not allowed, according to Jewish law, to violate Shabbat. The phone call would have been violating Shabbat in order to save the life of a non-Jew. Okay, that's the story. And it was published in Haaretz newspaper. It was picked up by world newspapers as well. Um, and he said he was so disturbed by this, he wrote a letter to the chief rabbinate and said, what should the halachic position be? And they wrote back to me and said, that individual did the right thing not to save the life of the non-Jew. So the chief rabbi of England at the time, uh, Lord Jacobovitz, felt this was a little bit suspicious. He, he says, that's not how I understand the Jewish law to be. And he did a little research and he wrote to this Israel Shahak several times. And anyway, it comes out, it never happened. The story was totally fabricated and he had to write a retraction. But in his retraction, he still gave a little zets. He says, it didn't happen, but it could have happened because that, in my understanding, is the law. And he brings sources that say, in general, you're not allowed to violate Shabbat in order to save the life of a non-Jew. One of the sources he brings, for example, is the Gemara in Yoma says, I don't know if I brought it here. I didn't bring it. The Gemara in Yoma says, why are you allowed to violate Shabbat in order to save the life of a Jew? Or why are you allowed to violate Shabbat in general to save lives? So there's four different answers given. One says the Torah is given for life. And so you should live by them, not die by them. Uh, there's a few other explanations given. But the one that the rabbis ultimately conclude is the explanation. It says you should violate Shabbat in order to save the life of a Jew, because that Jew then can commemorate and celebrate Shabbat many more times. So you're cumulatively, it's almost like a, you know, a, a John Mills utilitarian point of view. There's more Shabbat in the world if you save a life of a person who's going to keep Shabbat. What does that mean, though? If the person's not Jewish and they're not going to keep Shabbat in the future, you don't have a justification. So that's what he put forth. So this also created somewhat of an uproar, so much so that the chief rabbi of Israel at the time, Reverend Isser Yehuda Unterman, the Ashkenazi chief rabbi, wrote a long piece explaining why Yisrael Shachak is totally wrong. 
all throughout Jewish history, even in the time of the Talmud when this existed, where you have these you know, very provocative statements, Jews always violated Shabbat in order to save the lives of non-Jews. It just, that, that's our practice. But now he has to justify it in terms of the, the text. So he does a three-part analysis, and that's what I want to do with you. The first thing he does, I, I didn't bring sources here, I apologize. Uh, the first thing he does is he introduces the concept of mipnei eva. Uh, mipnei eva means because of enmity. And he quotes some of the sources that I've alluded to already about not lifting a idol worshiper out of a pit. Or there's another one that says um, a Jewish midwife is not permitted to help uh, bring in an uh, idol worshiper, a non-Jewish idol worshiper. Remember, it depends which non-Jews we're referring to, but not permitted to help a, a idol worshiping uh, woman who's pregnant bring her child into the world, okay? Because now there'll be more idol worshiping in the world. So that's a source as well. In any event, he says, there's this concept, mipnei eva, because of enmity. We don't want there to be enmity in the world between Jews and non-Jews. So therefore, to avoid that, you're allowed to save the life. You're allowed to violate Shabbat. You're allowed to do all these things, to avoid enmity between Jews and non-Jews. You're allowed to lift the person out of the, uh, out of the pit. You're allowed to allow this woman to help her give birth and a whole series of other things. So that's his first step. He says, we always saved lives. What's the problem with that insight? Okay, one is, you're right, it's very broad. It could be who determines what is enmity. I was going to say something from, from the other side. The other side is we get the result we want, right? I presume we want to save the life of the non-Jew, but the way we get the result is not very satisfying. It's, a, it's purely in my interest. The only reason I'm going to save you, non-Jewish individual who needs saving at this point in time, is because I want to save myself, right? I don't want people to look bad upon me, so I'm going to save you. It gets the result we want, and it existed. As a, as a policy, but it's not an overly inspiring idea. So he says there's another concept that's very closely related to Bipnei Eva because of enmity, um, but in a positive formulation. Darche Shalom. The ways of the Torah is to create peace between people. Um, by the way, this is not a concept that deals just with Jews and non-Jews. It deals with Jews and Jews, deals with the whole world, deals with all various issues. Whenever there's a potential for conflict, Let's find a way to sort of create a system that avoids the conflict in the first place. Okay, so if you look at that second source there, the, the Talmud in Gittin, this is actually the Mishnah. So it says that there were certain things that they would do for the ways of peace, Darkei Shalom, the ways of peace, um, to avoid uh, uh, and prevent strife and controversy. So for example, the first example, which is at the, on the third line, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. It didn't used to be that you had a, a Kohen, a Levi, and then a Yisrael when you would get called up to the Torah. Whoever get, could get called up, however you wanted to do it. But what happens then? There was conflict. Who's going to get this, Aliyah? Who's going to get that? So they said, in order to uh, minimize conflict, they made a declaration that will always give the first Aliyah to a Kohen. That way we know there's always a Kohen who gets one Aliyah. And a Levi, there's always a Levi who gets one Aliyah. And then the Israel. So to avoid that, there's another example to give. Um, if you're in a farm and, uh, you know, there's the, the source of the water and I have my farm here and you have yours here. And when you open up 
the, the, the aqueduct so that the water will reach the various different plots of, of fields. What's the order that you open it up? You know, so each, each time, each time you want to open up the water, there's going to be a fight. There's going to be a discussion. You got it last time. I should do it this time. Or my, my trees need it more. There's more, you know, they're almost dead. There's going to be discussion every single time. And there's always, a, whenever you have discussions, you have an opportunity for a conflict. So they say, we're going to make it easy. Whosoever is uh, field is closest, they're first, then second, third, and so on. Meaning they're not making major principal decisions. They're creating a system. It's like uh, red light, green light, yellow, right? The red could just as easily be go, right? But we make a, we make a, a decision. Red is going to mean stop, and that way society works better. And you know what? If you didn't have stoplights, you'd always you come to the intersection. You're always going to have a chance for conflicts. Let's avoid that. Let's create a light system. That's Dark Eishon. For the ways of peace, let's create systems that work. If you look at the bottom sort, the bottom bolded part in that source, it also has to do with our relationships with non-Jews. So one does not protest against, protest against poor Gentiles who come and take the gleanings, forgotten sheaves, and the produce of the corner of the field. These are three agricultural mitzvot. Peya, lekach, shechacha. Um, these are, if you have a field, you leave the corners of your field for the widow and the orphan. Uh, if you drop things as you're collecting uh, and you drop certain sheaves, poor people were allowed to pick up those sheaves after you. You're not allowed to go back. This is one of the sort of economic systems that Judaism is in an agricultural society in order to help the poor. It was specifically designed for the Jewish poor. Okay, that was the, to make sure you provide charitable sources for those closest to your fellow Jews, not for non-Jews. However, it says, uh, the, even though they're meant exclusively for the Jewish poor, you make you do not prevent if a non-Jew comes to collect the, the corners of your fields or the things that you dropped, you do not prevent them from doing it for to create peace, to, to prevent any type of conflict. You don't do that. You, you create the system that creates peace. So I think this is a little bit more rewarding, um, philosophically speaking, than the Mipnei Eva from enmity, right? We're doing it for a positive reason. Here too, we've always had this concept of darche shalom, that you see the rabbis change the law, right? The law says it's only for the Jews. We included non-Jews for the sake of peace, okay? But here too, it's, it's, it's more principled, but it's not ideally, it's very similar to Mipnei Eva in the sense, it's still for my benefit. I don't want to get into a conflict. I don't want to have a fight wherever I go. So it's still for my benefit. I'm going to have, my blood pressure is going to be lower if I create ways of peace. And that's another way, though, however, of how the rabbis improved our relations with non-Jews for this, through this principle. Rav Unterman says, that's not enough. There's another understanding of Darche Shalom. Darche Shalom is not just a practical utilitarian principle. Darche Shalom is what the Torah is all about, creating peace on a much higher level. So if you look at the next source, that's the Gemara, explaining the Mishnah we just learned. And the Gemara expands and says as follows, the sages sought, taught in a brighter. One sustains poor Gentiles along with poor Jews, meaning not just you don't refrain from not letting them collect the, the shikha. You give tzedakah to poor people, uh, poor Gentiles, just as you would poor Jews. And you visit the sick uh, Gentiles along with sick Jews. You bury the dead Gentiles along with dead Jews. It goes on and says you, 
you give hespedim, you give eulogies. You there's other sources that talk about elsewhere in the Gemara. Says you collect charity from non-Jews, right? That's already a even though that sounds less positive, right? I'm collecting charity from non-Jews like I would collect from Jews, but it's actually including, right? A person in the community by saying we're gonna we you're part of the community such that we think you should also help us support it. All this is done on the accounts of ways of peace to foster peaceful relations with Jews and Gentiles. The Rambam goes on and says as well, these are all the ways of peace. And he says on the third line in the next source, God is good to all and God's mercy is on kol, kol ma'asav, on all of his creations. All of God's creations includes obviously Jews and non-Jews. And the ways of Torah are ways of pleasantness and our paths are peaceful. But Unterman says, if you look at the, the next source, I'm sorry, I didn't translate because his Hebrew is quite beautiful. Rav Unterman says that the Darche Shalom that the rabbis were talking about is not a practical thing just to avoid conflict. He says, that's what the whole essence of the Torah is. Abai in the Gemara actually says, Kol HaTorah, Kula, the entire Torah is Darche Shalom. The entire Torah is the way of peace. So if, if, if Torah produces a result that is somehow negative and is not creating peace or is not respecting, right? What, what Rav Unterman says, when the Rambam quotes and says in that same line that says we're supposed to show mercy on all of God's creations because God shows mercy on all of God's creations, we're supposed to emulate God. And just as God tries to love every, all of humanity, we should try to emulate God as well. And that, that value has to permeate every single halachic decision. Meaning the way you keep kosher has to have an element of darche shalom. The way you keep Shabbat has to have an element of darche shalom. The way you relate to non-Jews, the way you relate to Jews, the way you do anything, darche shalom is a, is a meta-halachic principle that has to influence all of our halachic decisions. There are, by the way, not, darche shalom is not the only meta-halachic principle. Uh, Rabbi Daniel Sperber has a wonderful book called Darche Shalhalacha, where he lists a number of the meta-halakhic principles that influence how we make halakhic decisions. Uh, so for example, there is the concept of kavod habriyot, right? That uh, showing honor to creation. There are certain things that would not be honorable. For example, if a, 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 new, a newly married woman, all right, a bride, um, Yom Kippur is right after she gets married, gets married. On Yom Kippur, you're not supposed to wash Right? That's one of the five prohibitions. You don't eat, you don't watch. But if this is a, you know, you can imagine the, the second day of getting married and they don't really know each other. Certainly put yourself back in the time of the Talmud or biblical times, don't really know each other. And she would feel uncomfortable, right? Not having washed, not having brushed teeth. She's permitted to do so, to honor her and honor the new relationship that was formed. Um, there's another principle, darchi noam, ways of pleasantness. Uh, for example, the Torah, when it says we're supposed to have a, uh, it doesn't say a lulav and a netrok, right? It says it's it's a generic term, creates hadar, right? A, a fruit from the from the hadar, which we say is a netrok, and it also talks about some type of pond form. Well, in Israel, there are two types of pond forms. One of them is the lulav that we use. Another one is very similar, but it has thorns coming out. And the rabbis say we don't know. The Torah doesn't tell us which one of these is the one we're supposed to use. What are we supposed to use? And the rabbis say, well, you just follow the principle of darche noam. We say it when we put the Torah away, right? Kol nativoteha, all the ways of Torah are ways of pleasantness. If you have a choice between a lulav that doesn't give you 
cuts when you use it, and a lulav that does give you cuts. Obviously, the Torah is referring to the one that doesn't give you cuts. Uh, there are other sources about taking care of uh, uh, the money of poor Jews. That the Torah takes pity uh, on the Torah, on the, the financial obligations of a Jew. The classic example, this is in when the Jews were commanded to bring a sacrifice for the Passover. It says, if you can't eat the entire uh, sacrifice, you're allowed to share with other families. Well, think about it. If you're a poor person and you have to eat the entire animal by yourself, most of it's going to go to waste, right? And that means you've just spent an enormous amount of money to fulfill a, an, a Torah obligation. But if you could share with three, five, ten other families, all of a sudden, there's a pity. So from that principle, all throughout Jewish history, you'll see uh, the rabbis have made exceptions. There was a time, for example, why are we buried in a plain, simple pine box, right? Not something more elaborate. In Israel, by the way, we're not buried in boxes at all, coffins at all. It was for financial reasons that the wealthy would have these big ceremonies and you know fancy coffins and there was gold and silver all over the place. And people felt that they had a keep up with the Joneses and poor families in order to have a funeral would spend exorbitant amounts of money for them. For them. And so the rabbis came along and says, the Torah, chasa, takes pity on the money of Israel. Nope, you can only have plain pine boxes. Um, there are many examples. There are many other halakhic principles, meta-halakhic principles, uh, that should influence how a halakhic decision is made. And that's one of the things that uh, I think Rabbi Lichtenstein, when he says this decision about the uh, rabbi's letter, didn't take into consideration these other halakhic principles, this is what he is referring to. There's another, there's another sort of general, not a meta-halakhic principle, but about how we look at text in general. There was a Yale University law professor by the name of uh, Robert Cover. He wrote a famous uh, law article, a law review article called Nomos and Narrative. And he was talking about the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, and he was talking about how he says every Decalogue has a scripture. Right? The Ten Commandments is not just the Ten Commandments. It's also influenced by the entire story of the Torah, the Jews leaving Egypt, God rescuing them as their slaves. That influences the Ten Commandments. And therefore, it's talking about the Constitution as well. It says the Constitution is one thing, but there's also a, a narrative. Nomos is law. Narrative is, well, what is the narrative? What was the history of the American people that should influence the Constitution? And then he gives example, interestingly enough, from, from Judaism. And so, for example, he says, you have to be sensitive to what the narrative says and not just what the laws say, mm -hmm. right? So think, for example, there is a law that says the firstborn male gets double portions in inheritance. Okay, that's the, the law. Now think about the narrative about firstborns in the Torah, right? Who are some of the heroes in Jewish law or Jewish narrative, right? David is not the firstborn. Moshe is not the firstborn. Isaac is not the firstborn. Jacob is not the firstborn. Um, what? Right. Uh, but but we can keep going. You'll be very hard pressed to find a firstborn who is the leader. In other words, there's a narrative that sort of undermines the halacha itself. And what he argues is the narrative has to impact when you make a halakhic decision. And so, for example, if there was a compelling need not to give the firstborn male double portion, so then you already have the justification for that in the narrative. Um, so one of the most 
compelling narratives in the Torah is uh, that we are all created, all of humanity is created, Mitzalem Elohim, right? Every human, Jew and non-Jew, is created Mitzalem Elohim in the image of God. So when you make a halachic decisions, whatever the halacha itself says, that has to be influenced also by the narrative of every human being is created in the image of God. So that's how halachic reasoning and thinking actually gets done, not just taking one source and then divorcing it from the rest of the, the narrative. Okay, so if you take this way of looking at halacha, I think you can come back to why Rav Unterman felt very comfortable to say, Darche Shalom justifies quite easily the actions of saving the life of a non-Jew, on, even if it requires violating Shabbat, even though there are potential reasons why you might not think that way. And that's why he dismissed Shachak. He says, you don't understand, the same way the rabbi's letter that says we can't rent out to non-Jews, Shachak, you also don't understand how halacha works at all either. Um, there is this principal concept of Darche Shalom. Okay, what I want to do now though, I said I wanted to sort of connect this to Israel. The development of the concept of Darche Shalom is something that developed in the diaspora, okay? It, it is something that has been developed over the last 2,000 years. I should add, there's been other developments as well. Just mention one that I've already referenced, the Me'iri, the 13th century rabbi. Um, he says, the reason why you would save the life of that non-Jewish tourist uh, is because the non-Jew today is not anything like what the Torah is referring to in the Torah. When the Torah is, they're talking about Jew, non-Jews who were harassing, who were killing you, who were uh, worshiping idols, which were sacrificing their children to Molech. Um, that's who the Torah is referring to. Uh, that non-Jewish tourist who's coming, spending money in Israel, as, who, who's part of a, another religion, who's part of a civilized society, who keeps ethics and morals, there's no correlation whatsoever. And so therefore, none of those laws would even apply. Rav Unterman mentions that as well. He says, things have changed. So halacha also changes, but, but it's keeping the exact same values in, in that regard. So I said I wanted to sort of then talk about Israel. What I've mentioned up till now is, so for 2,000 years, this concept of darche shalom, what I call darche shalom plus, right? The second, the more principled value of darche shalom. The Abaye who says the entire Torah, the metahalachic element of darche shalom, is something that developed in the diaspora. So now when Israel is being founded in 1948, and the rabbis have to make a decision of how should Israel, the, the, the modern state, view its non-Jewish populations, one of the great sources for them to rely upon is this concept of Darche Shalom that has been developed over the last 2,000 years. So if you look at uh, the second page of the source sheet, by the way, for those of you who do read Hebrew and after the class, if you want to, I can translate. Rav Unterman's piece is really quite beautiful. How he, how impassioned he is about uh, the Darche Shalom is essential to the understanding of Torah. Um, so there were six opinions that I came across. It's based upon a, a, a paper written by a researcher by the name of Eliezer Chadad, the Israel Democracy Institute. So he says there are six different opinions that have been, been out there. The first five use more or less concept that we've at least touched upon in the last half hour or so. So for example, the first opinion, Rav Shaul Yisraeli, uh, he says, the reason why Israel has to be like any other state is because we have to be. In other words, if Israel declared in its declaration of independence and said, uh, we are not going to give equal rights to the sizable Arab minority. So the UN would not vote 
for Israel to become a state. And so therefore, not to create enmity amongst the nations of the world, which would then hurt us because we wouldn't then be allowed to establish a state, we should make sure that we enshrine in the Declaration of Independence equal rights uh, for all people, Jews and non-Jews alike. That was his, that's the first opinion, um, which is basically very similar to the Neeva uh, principle. He says, when the Jews are not strong enough, we have to follow that path. The problem with that opinion, of course, is if Israel ever becomes strong enough, maybe it's not obligated in the same way. And that's why uh, Rav Herzog, I think this is the grandfather of the current president, Rav Herzog. So he says, um, he adds, both he and the, the next one add to what uh, Rav Shaul Yisraeli just says. Rav Herzog says, listen, when the state of Israel was founded, we found it as a partnership, right? It's the UN helped found the state of Israel. So it's not that because we're not strong enough, but whenever you go into partnership with someone else, you have to respect the different uh, concerns and interests of your partner. And so since we are a partner with the United Nations, we're a partner with the rest of the world, that's one of the principles that is important, equal rights for all citizens. So therefore, we have to respect that. That's more of a Darche Shalom level one, right? Society requires us to have certain general uh, things that help us avoid conflict. Rav Yudah Amital, who is the co-Rosh Yeshiva of that Yeshiva I mentioned before with Rav Aaron Lichtenstein at the uh, uh, Haaretzion, he says, similar to Mignay Eva, because of enmity, but he uses the concept Hashem. He says that if we agreed to it at the founding of the state and then went back on it, he's kind of commenting on what Rav Shaul Yisraeli says, that if we ever become strong enough, we no longer have to follow that principle. He says that would be a desecration of God's name. People would say we're not being honest. And he actually has an interesting principle uh, to prove that there is the story of when uh, Joshua first enters the land of Israel and Everyone in the land of Israel was terrified that the Jews are coming in, the Israelites are coming in, and the Givonites, they pretend to be not one of the seven people that are indigenous to the land. They pretend to be a people that came from far away. They get dressed up as if they're foreigners. And they come to Joshua and they say, we're not the people you're upset with. Let's have a treaty. And Joshua signs a treaty with them. It then comes out later that they were, uh, it was a ruse. It was a fraud. At this point in time, Joshua nevertheless respects the treaty that they made. And the Rambam says on that, because even though they're in the right, right? Joshua could have been right and says, you tricked us. We're not being dishonest. You're the ones who are being dishonest. But the rest of the world may not view it. They may not know the nuances of how the treaty came into being. So even when you're in the right, if the appearances that you will be being dishonest, you have to protect the appearance nevertheless, because people will ascribe that dishonesty to God. And so therefore, it would be a desecration of God's name. So Rav Yehuda Amital says, also, we have to make sure to protect those rights. Rav Unterman, uh, who we've already quoted, and Rav Uziel, who was the Sephardi chief rabbi at the time, they say, no, we don't have to do any of these mental gymnastics. You have to have equal rights because of Darche Shalom Plus. The whole way of Torah is plus. That's the principle. That's what we should follow through. And that was their response to why Israel should have equal rights. Darche Shalom. The Rabbi David Halevi, he basically conjures up the Me'iri. The Me'iri, if you recall, is the one who says Jews, non-Jews of today don't have any resemblance to the non-Jews that the Torah is referring to. And so therefore he says, 
none of this is relevant. Of course, you give equal rights because all the prohibitions and all the negative things that were in the Torah and the Talmud were referring to people who were murderers and thieves. And that's not the case today. So therefore, it's no longer applicable. Okay. So those are five different opinions. The sixth opinion is the one I want to sort of uh, conclude with. That's the Ger Toshav model. This is not a diaspora model. Everything I set up to now was ideas that were developed in the Talmud, which is diaspora and subsequent sources. The Ger Toshav is directly from the Bible. It doesn't refer to non-Jews that live outside of the land of Israel. It refers to non-Jews that live in the land of Israel. And it is exclusive to them and not at all relevant to people, non-Jews who live outside the land of Israel. And the Torah says, you have one standard for the stranger and the citizen alike. That stranger is the Ger Toshav, the one who lives in your land. Um, and you hold him like a resident alien. The Torah says you let him live by your side. You do not exact from him advance or interest, right? The same way you don't do to, non, to Jews. Um, and you live by him as your kinsman. You treat him the same as you would treat a Jew because he has rights. He has citizenship rights almost as a Ger Toshav. Um, there are a number of other sources that refer to uh, all the different obligations you have to him. If you look at uh, the source below, Nachum Rabinovich, who was the Rosh Yeshiva of a Hezer Yeshiva in Malay Adumim, he says, the Ger Toshav, like the fugitive slave, is entitled to more than just admission to the country. To both applies the mandate of the Torah. He shall dwell with you in the midst of you, in the place that he shall choose within one of your gates. And if, as it pleases him, you shall not vex him. And he goes on to say, this means you have an obligation to provide economic assistance to him. You have to make sure, you can't put him like in the far parts of the country. You have to make sure that he's in the central part of the country so he can have a, a economic opportunity. You have to provide healthcare. You have to, he goes a whole list of all these obligations you have from the Torah. Not because you're being nice, not because you know, you're enlightened and you believe in universal values. The opposite, you believe in the Torah, very parochial values but you have an obligation as a Ger Toshav because that's what exists. The question is, who is a Ger Toshav is a big question. We have to explore it, but I don't think we have enough time. The only thing I would say, uh, generally speaking, is there are three different opinions in the Talmud. And I think the source is there, yeah. Uh, the Talmud of Odazara down below, if you want to read it more in depth. Rabbi Meir says, anyone who's not an idol worshiper who lives in the land of Israel is a Ger Toshav. Uh, the sages say, no, he has to be a, follow the seven, laws of Noah, and the Acharim, others say, no, they have to be almost be Jewish, meaning they have to keep most of the mitzvah, just a few that they don't end up keeping. There's these three different opinions. Most people are of the first two opinions. A Ger Toshav has to either follow the seven laws of Noah, or uh, just at least not be an idol worshiper, which is a very low bar. If you think about it, whatever it is, Rav Cook says, the people who live in the land of Israel today, primarily Arab, uh, Arab Muslims, but also Arab Christians, although there's an argument about that. But again, that's a, uh, not with Rav Cook, but with other sources. They say, since they are part of societies that follow general ethical principles, they are Ger Toshav. So according to Rav Cook, the minorities that live in the land of Israel today are Ger Toshav. There's another argument. Again, I don't want to get too in-depth. Uh, the question is whether or not you have to affirm that you are Ger Toshav. If you are a non-Jew living in the land of Israel, do you have to say, I am a Ger Toshav, meaning you have to come to a, a Jewish court and submit, or just by default, you automatically are. That's what Rav Cook's opinion is. Just by default, you don't have to do anything. If you're a part of, you know, if you're a Muslim, if you're a Christian, you're a Ger Toshav. And then once you hit that standard, all these 
uh, benefits accrue to you. What's the difference between you be a ger toshav and darche shalom? Like, which is the better principle? What is the better way of viewing um, Jewish and non-Jewish relations in the state of Israel? Which is, what, what are the, the differences between which way you hold? So I think you could see on different ways. One is darche shalom is a more universal sort of ethical principle. Ger Toshav is very limited to Torah. It also, Ger Toshav is limited in who it applies to. It only applies to people living in the land of Israel. It doesn't help you if you're traveling in America, how you view non-Jews in America. Um, there are legal benefits and lack of benefits. Um, uh, right, We have these two principles of how you gain citizenship in the world. Right, There's Jusoli, which means a land of the soil. If you're born in a place, you get citizenship in that place. Um, and then there's sanguinous, which is blood. Just sanguinous, which is if your parents were of a citizenship, you get their citizenship. In 1961, the UN has stated that its preference is primarily for the former, that its territorial law is what we prefer, because that's how you avoid stateless people. Right? If you only get citizenship from your parents, if your parents are not citizens and you're born in a place, you're stateless still. But you're, if you're, the U.S., of course, has both, both principles to avoid statelessness, which is one of the, the, the goals of enjoining both. So, so Ger Toshav is a territorially based. It's actually very enlightened for its time compared to 1961 is when the rest of the world comes along and says there's a benefit to being territorial state citizenship. There is a... Another difference, um, I put some of the ver various differences down below. So one is an Israel model, one is a diaspora model, one is citizenship rights versus human rights, right? Darke Shalom is viewing a person as a human being, um, whereas uh, Gertoshev is viewing them as a citizen. Now, on one hand, we want to view everyone as a human being, of course. On the other hand, let's say you're a soldier who is not well-versed in, uh, you know, Hume and Rousseau and the rights of uh, individuals and things along those lines. But you are well-versed in, you have obligations to citizens. So the Ger Toshav model might be a better way to make sure that that soldier treats that non-Jew because he has an obligation to him as a citizen, as opposed to, I have to think philosophically, does he meet certain standards? You know, is he an idol worshiper? Is he this? I don't have to do those things. Uh, another, I think, important related distinction is the sense of obligation. The same author that I mentioned before, Robert Cover, he says that Judaism uses the language of obligation more so than the language of rights. Um, so, for example, and he then uses the, he's having discussion about American law. He says, you know, there is a law that every individual has a right to a good education. But then the fighting begins. Who's responsible for paying for that if that, that education? Everyone says, the state says, it's not my, it's the federal obligation. The federal says, no, it's this local. And at the end of the day, the people don't get the proper education. He says, that's the language of rights. He says, I believe in rights. I believe in civil rights, human rights. I love rights. And we should expand the notion of rights. But Judaism says, rights don't always accomplish what you want to accomplish. Obligations do. So what does Judaism say? It is the obligation of the parent to teach the child. Okay, now if the parent can't teach the child, he has to hire the community to do so. But it doesn't start by saying the child has a right to education. It starts by saying the parent has an obligation. And then you've already solved the problem of who is going to provide. And he goes through a whole list of other types of rights and how sometimes if you use the language of obligation, you actually accomplish something better. So here too, Ger Toshav is an obligation, 
on the state of how it treats its citizens. Whereas Darche Shalom is a right that a person has to be treated a certain, a certain way. There, there's much more I think we could say along those lines, but I want to at least be able to conclude with the, fulfilling the promise that I said, which was uh, the tortoise and the hare, about how you sometimes do things together and you get something richer. So if I can, just for a moment, Pirkei Avot, Ethics of the Sages. Right? We're familiar, I think, with uh, a lot of the teachings there. One of the most famous teachings there is, right, we sing a song, right? Ha'olam omed, the world, on three things, the world stands. What are those three things the world stands? I'll call on you, make you, yeah? Right, Torah, study of Torah, Havudah, which it could be prayer, but it's also connected to what took place in the time of the temple, like the uh, temple worship service. Um, and Gimilut Chasidim, acts of loving kindness. I, I should point out the Gimilut Chasidim actually has specific acts of loving kindness. Feed the poor, right? bury the dead, uh, visit the sick. Okay, Meaning there's specific ideas that are mentioned. It's not general as we think, it's more, more curtailed. At the end of the first chapter, now this you get bonus points if you get this. At the end of the first chapter, Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, that first opinion was Rabbi Shimon ben Sadik, uh, Shimon Atzadik, Simon the Just. At the end, Simon, the son of Gamliel, says the world is kayam, exists, or some people translate it as uh, is maintained on three things. And he says three different things. Do you remember those three different things? He says justice, emet, truth, um, and shalom, and peace. What's the difference? Is it Torah, Avodah, Gimnut Hasidim? Or is it justice, emet, truth, and, and peace? Both. It's both. Of course, right. It's always got to be both. So what, so, so, but what happened in between? Like, there's a 300-year gap between Simon the Just and uh, Simon the son of Gamaliel. Why did they change? And what happened in between? So uh, Rav Karo, the person who wrote the Shulchan Aruch, actually has a commentary on this, this question. And he says the temple was destroyed in between. And he says, there are two different forces that are involved in, in, in the world. He says, there are world-creating forces. World-creating forces are forces that are very strong, very powerful, that you need to create something new. And very often, they are um, they're very parochial, right? Meaning, if you want to accomplish something really really difficult. You need like a very cohesive group, a group of people who speak the same language, they have the same history, they have the same vision, right? And you can sort of work in unison to accomplish, to create something totally new that's never existed before. He says, it's hard to bring people from all different backgrounds for this. He says, that's a world creating group. He says, that, by the way, is what existed uh, before in the time of the temple. There was Torah, which is, is not just general wisdom. It's the wisdom of the Jewish people. There is uh, Avodah. There's the temple worship. It's a specific way. It's Jerusalem at its center. It's the, and Gimilut Chasidim, acts of kindness. That's wonderful. But as we already referenced earlier, many of these are specifically obligations you have to fellow Jews, right? Feeding them. Yes, non-Jews can participate, but really they're designed for Jews. He says, that's, that's a world-creating organization. Simon the Just, after the destruction of the temple, and now you're beginning to have Jews being exiled. And you, so how do you maintain the world? So now you have to sort of translate those very unique, specific parochial values in a way that can be translated and understood by other people who don't share the same values. Um, uh, so justice, 
right? And, and truth and peace are still very important values, but they're weaker. They're weaker, but they are more expansive. They, they, they're not going to, you know, you're not going to have as much of a rallying cry around these generic terms, but you can at least get along with other people. You can say, hey, we have a shared value of justice and truth, right? Let's try to keep our society together as a result of that. So he argues that's a world maintaining values. So the difference was in the before the temple, we had a world creating and after we had world maintaining. And what I want to suggest is the diaspora values for Jews to survive in the world. We created world maintaining values. Darche Shalom is a principle that you can explain to anyone, right? That is, is a value that anyone of any religion can appreciate uh, that we want to have good, you know, good relations with other people that the Torah is about trying to be sensitive and caring and kind for other people. These are universal values. Um, but to create something new, you need something more parochial, something more unique. That's the Ger Toshav model, right? That's the biblical, the, the Bible says, you Jews have this obligation to, so as I said, I wanted to end by saying why I think Israel is such an exciting place to be. So I think what's taking place in Israel now to a certain extent, not just on this particular issue, but in general is that, and sometimes this is why Israel seems the exact opposite of what I'm saying. Not an exciting, wonderful, but sometimes it seems very, you know, schizophrenic almost. Because on one hand, we're a biblical society. We are a world creating society. We want everyone to be the same because when everyone is the same, we're able to create these really new innovations. On the other hand, we have the experience of the diaspora of the 2000 years where Jews learned how to get along with everyone and created ideas that could have an impact on everyone's lives. Right? It's hard to translate Torah, but it's much easier to translate Shalom and, and Emmet and the other more universal values. And what I think is taking place in Israel or what should take place um, is that we combine the two, the tortoise and the hare. When they work together, they actually create the, the ideal that we should not be just a world creating nor just a world maintaining, but it should sort of be a dance that you have the cohesiveness and then you realize somehow you have to expand, expand the it the tent for others. And then you come back and you back and this sort of pulsating uh, process of the heart beating is what could really make Israel uh, unique in the world because it has both of these uh, contrary impulses and and can really contribute something special by being able to have the two working in in unison. Um, thank you so much for sharing your time with, uh, with me. And so I'm just going to repeat the question first for those who are online. Um, the first three, the world creating values. Why did I say that they are stronger um, than the, the world maintaining? Um, I don't know if stronger might not be the right word, uh, but this, this professor that I quoted from before, by the way, if anyone wants to explore any of these ideas more in depth. I wrote a 75 page paper on what I just shared with you. That's why I was nervous whether or not I would make it in or not. Um, but, but I also quote Robert Cover, the Yale professor, uh, another time. So he introduces this concept of pedaic and imperial. Pedaic is what we called with uh, Rav Caro, the world creating. And he actually it's a, connects it to the Greek society. So I'm just going to read how he describes it. I think we can give a better sense. Stronger is perhaps not the right word, but effective at creating, I think is the maybe a better way. He says, a Padaic society, a common body of precept and narrative, right? We have the same narrative. 
going back to the other point I was talking about previously, you come into a room and you can talk about the Exodus, right? Now the Exodus has become somewhat universal, which is maybe the ideal of to create a, a, a narrative, a unique narrative and make it uh, as broad as possible, just as an aside, but I think it's an important aside. I once read a book um, about Bruce Springsteen. Now, those of us who can't sing, right? We don't sing Bruce Springsteen. We read books about Bruce Springsteen, yeah. okay? So Bruce Springsteen, um, he writes that he always wanted to create the perfect universal song, the song that speaks to the heart of everyone, right? And he, he said he was always struggling to write it and he could never just get it. And one day he was on tour and he was in, New, uh, in Tokyo and he's playing his uh, music and he's looking out along the crowd and there, there's like tens of thousands of people wearing t-shirts that say Route 9 on it. Now Route 9 is from Teaneck, right? Um, is a route in New Jersey. Um, and all of a sudden it hit him. He'd been writing about what he knows, New Jersey, life in New Jersey, a very parochial story. Um, and he realized all of a sudden that's what's universal. Meaning when you can sort of turn inwards and describe your own personal story in a very powerful uh, way, that will speak to other people. Okay, put that, that one aside for a second. So he says, we have a same narrative, a common and personal way of being educated into this corpus, right? We have, you know, schools that teach this, right? Um, a sense of direction and growth that is constituted as the individual in this community work out the implications of their law. Interpersonal commitments are characterized by reciprocal acknowledgement, the recognition that individuals have particular needs and strong obligations to render person-specific responses, right? When you grow up in a cohesive community, doesn't matter if it's Jewish, Amish, a church, right? You feel a deeper obligation, I'm sorry, you feel a deeper obligation to those people, okay? In theory, we should all feel the exact same obligation to every human being that exists in the world. But in practice, I love my mom more than I love any, just a random woman of her same age walking down the street. That's how it works. Part of the reason why is hopefully that we can sort of learn from that personal relationship how to relate to other people. So that's what I mean by stronger. It, it's, it's a more natural, it's, it's, and to do certain things, to build a state, for example, to take on the risks, you need to be able to rely on, you know, if you're, you need to trust the person who is, you know, let's say holding your rope, right? That they're not going to drop you. Um, and, and, and that's, but at some point in time, that's not enough because you can only accomplish so much like that. And so you do want to eventually get to the broad, but you can never lose the, the, unique, the unique element. Oh, one from online. Have the values, principles, or metahalakic principles been codified in any ways? It's a good question. Um, uh, for those who, I don't know if I said it out loud enough, have the metahalakic principles and values been codified? So it depends what you mean by codified. The Rambam doesn't necessarily have a book uh, of one of his Mishnah Torah, which is all the laws. Although he does have a few principles that he speaks about in the very beginning, in the Yesodei HaTorah, the foundations of Torah, um, in the Book of Mada, the Book of Knowledge, he describes things. More so, he describes them, I think, in the Mor um, Nevuchim, which is not a, a, a book of law, it's a book of philosophy. Um, and that's part of the problem, is that 
once you codify things, you limit them. Right? Once you say, this is the law in black and white, you've taken away the ability of interpretation, which is what's required in order to apply. Right? I can't just say this principle of, uh, let's say, let me say something different. Okay, I'm gonna, ah, so, so all these principles exist in the Torah. Meaning they're, 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 they're all the meaning. So again, we're, we're using no. Okay, so so we have two different sort of sources of this metahalacha. One is the narrative of the Torah, right? You, you, when you read the Torah, you get a sense, right, of what's important. I mentioned like creating the image of God. Those ideas are expanded upon in the Talmud. Absolutely, um, you then also have specific legal, general legal principles that are mentioned. I mentioned, for example, the, the Torah law of that you can spend money, right? You could share, that you can share, um, you could share that, that one sacrifice amongst many. Now, it's up to the Talmud to learn that out as a metahalachic principle, not the Torah itself doesn't say this is a metahalachic principle. Um, the question is, I, I think, if I understand, if I can, project into what uh, the questioner is asking um, is we want black and white. Black and white is helpful to tell us because then I can wave it and say, here it is. But, but it's the result, meaning you have, to, you have to be well-versed in the entire Torah. You have to be well-versed in the Talmud and you get a sense of what's right as a result of that experience. It's not a foregone conclusion. Um, and it's the interplay between the black letters of the law and the white. You know, they talk about, the Kabbalists speak about, when you look at the Torah, there's the black letters and there's the white behind it. The white is also letters, right? The white is, is the interpretation, but they interpret many interpretations, but you, you, how do you interpret the interpret? The interpreters have to rely. I'll give you one example that um, I understand. Okay, so just a, a broad the conversation. If you have many different interpreters, how do we resolve? So first of all, you know, there, there is a wisdom in the crowd and there is the wisdom in the ages, right? Metahalachic principles that have survived for 2000 years, there's a wisdom in that, okay? Also, I should point out, and this is what's something that um, uh, 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 Berkowitz, I'm drawing a blank on his, Eliezer Berkowitz writes, because he's one of the ones who promotes this concept of, of uh, Darche Shalom as well as others, is that you have to have the sources for your interpretation and the sources have to be from the inside, not from the outside. If you're bringing sources from the outside, already you, it's not a metahalachic principle. We have enough from the inside. I, I want to I add one thing that Rabbi Sachs says uh, to the first questioner. So he says, um, you know, the Torah is a different moral system than the Greeks, for example, or others. They codify their laws. It's very clear, right? How did the, how did the, how did the, uh, the, how does the Torah codify its laws? Through stories, law and stories. What do you accomplish in the story? So he gives, Rabbi Sachs gives this example. He says, watch what I can do with one story read five different ways. The famous story is the story of the brothers, right? Uh, uh, Jacob and Esau, Isaac and Ishmael. So the Jewish story, right? The hero is Jacob. Right, his his Asaph is this terrible person who's oppressing him. Right, he's the hero. That's the Jewish tradition. Now read the story though from a simple point of view. If you just read the simple understanding, Jacob seems to steal a birthright. Asaph doesn't seem to do anything so terrible. 
you have sympathy for Esau. When Ishmael, right, is, is exiled by Abraham and he's in the desert and he's, he's crying out, his mother's crying out for, the, for water. Where's your sympathy? Your sympathy is with Ishmael. Look what a story has done. The story has at one and the same time told you, I am B'nai Yaakov. I am the children of Yaakov. I have an intimate, close relationship. And I have an incredible sensitivity for my enemy. In the story, right? You can't put that in a code. And by the way, you can read the stories differently. There's a Christian way of reading the story. There's a Muslim way of reading the story. And the characters are different again. And so, and by the way, we know the story is important because there's only one reason why Abraham is the Torah tells explains why Abraham is selected as a as the recipient of God's message. There's only one. It says because he will raise his children a certain way, as the role of a father. How does Abraham look at his children? How does Abraham look at Ishmael? Ah, if only Ishmael would follow my ways. He has a tremendous amount of love for Ishmael. He is crushed when he has to exile him. So when you read the story, you get so much more nuance. And, and the moral grandeur of the story enables it to have a much more power. And you can hold two competing ideas at the exact same time, which a code by definition does not allow you to do. A code by definition says, this is the one way, but it's all within the text. It's all within the text and the interpretation. Right. Rabbi Pear, thank you so much uh, for joining us today, virtually and in person. That was a real um, treat for us. Um, and thank you so much for, for sharing your learning with us. I hope everyone can hear me okay in the room there. Um, I just want to let everyone know about our next class, which will be on Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific, um, and that'll just be a virtual class. We will be hosting Dr. Amy Jill Levine and Dr. Mark Brettler for their talk, Reading Matthew from a Jewish Perspective. So we hope you can all tune into that as well. Um, and thank you all again for joining us today. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.